0: Happy Sabbath, church. It's good to see so many in the house of God today. Um, As the pandemic seems to be winding down, um, isn't it interesting that as it winds down, the threat of war returns? Um, And uh, our vice president, I think, just met with uh, the president of Ukraine to say that America will stand with Ukraine. And here the world now teeters... On war, um, It's a very interesting time in which we live It wasn't very long ago that um, The President of Russia, Putin Met with the President of China um, And so you can see quickly That as prophesied in Matthew chapter 24 The time of the end There will be wars And rumors of wars And the world stands on edge once again But I want to submit to you that We serve a faithful God, as the children's story spoke of. We have no reason to fear. We stand in the promises of the truth of the scripture. And today we're going to continue um, in that vein. um, And I want to reassure you that the prophecies of scripture not only tell us of great times of tribulation and trouble, They also tell us of a time when Christ redeems us from off this planet. So our time on this earth, by God's grace, is not long. Understanding these truths are critical because the world is being thrown into chaos. The Christian must be thrown into Christ. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Philippians, the second chapter. I'll start at verse 5 and read verse 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, the scripture says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. A message this Sabbath is entitled, Apologetics, the Nature of Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and your truth. Once again, Lord, I ask that you just make me a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. Upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Lord, let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. I do want to give a shout out over the internet to my cousin Devon, who's joining us virtually from um, Palm Bay, Florida. Uh, blessings to him and his wife as they as they watch in. Um We're going to get right into this. We have a a lot to cover today. Matthew chapter 4, one of my favorite Bible stories, all of you are familiar with it. It is the temptation of Christ. And we won't won't dive too deep into this except to help set the stage for what we're going to discuss today. Matthew 4 verse 1 says, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Mark says Christ was driven uh, by the spirit into the wilderness. Christ did not choose to be tempted. He was led there and sent there by the Holy Ghost. Verse 2, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. Now, this is the Bible telling you about Christ's humanity. Amen? Jesus fasted 40 days and then he was hungry. In fact. From a medical standpoint, 40 days is about when your body would begin to break down from not having food. Christ here is at his weakest point. Verse three. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Who is the tempter? It's Satan. Satan took this job himself. He would not even give it to a demon. Let me tell you something, church. In some of our lives, in some of our houses, as we try and be Christians, Satan will unleash his greatest arsenal against us. He comes for Jesus himself. And when he comes, uh, Jesus is now probably quite emaciated and thin, weakened by the time he has spent in this wilderness. Um, And as Jesus is is emotionally and psychologically been worn down by by the trials he's gone through in this wilderness. Satan appears as an angel of light. Can you imagine? As if he was a visitor from the heavenly courts, as if God had sent him to visit Jesus. And here this angel of light steps. And if you've ever been to Israel, uh, you know that the, 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 the way that the landscape is, there are a lot of stones and very perfectly round stones would have been laying around. In fact, at first glance, they would look like loaves of bread. Satan played on Christ's hunger. He attacked him at the point where Adam had failed on the point of appetite. The difference is Adam had not fasted 40 days first. Here he says, listen, turn the stones to bread in verse four. But he answered, Jesus answered Satan and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. But by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God as, 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 as he is there. Jesus responds with the word of God and he defeats Satan in the first temptation. Now let me tell you something, some of us, if we had the power to turn stone to bread, we'd be turning the bread into Twinkies and honey buns and <laughs> boxes of Oreo cookies. We'd, we'd, we'd have a, we'd, be, we'd be like a bakery out in the middle of the desert. But Jesus is able to say, no, I'm going to live by what God's word says to do. And this is the armament that we are to have. When we talk about putting on the whole armor of God, only one offensive weapon is given. It is the sword of the word. If you do not know God's word, you cannot attack the enemy. Verse five, then the devil takes him up into the holy city and sets him on a pinnacle of the temple saith unto him, if you be the son of God, cast yourself down. And look at what the devil does. He responds with the word. He says it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. He quotes the book of Psalms. I I wish I could get deep into this all by itself, but I'm trying to get somewhere else. He takes him up and uses the Bible to try and convince Jesus to sin. Jesus said unto him, verse 7, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. He answers with the scripture. Matthew 4 and verse 8, again, the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And I believe that this is a supernatural display that Satan puts on, uh, allowing the kingdoms of the world as they march through time to go in front of Christ, that he could rule every great nation. All these things will I give thee if you will fall down and worship me. You go back to the origin story of Lucifer and Satan. What he wanted was to be elevated above God. For if Christ would worship him, what Satan was re- if Christ would worship him, Satan would achieve his goal that he sets out in Isaiah and in Ezekiel saying that he wanted. And all he's trying to do to Jesus now is give him a shortcut. You don't have to suffer on this earth. You don't have to go to the cross and die. All you have to do is worship me and I'll give you a painless solution to the problem careful when the world offers you shortcuts then saith jesus unto him get thee hence get behind me satan for it is written you shall worship the lord your god and him only shall you serve then the devil left him and behold angels came and ministered unto him when jesus falls down after this angels come to deal with him Now, um, in one of the other Gospels, Luke says the, the devil left him for a season. The devil himself worked tirelessly, even from the time Jesus was a child, to try and get Jesus to sin. You see, when we start to talk about the nature of Christ, it is critical in our Christian walk to understand it. Jesus was in a situation where he could sin. He didn't sin. But it was not impossible for him to sin. Satan understood that. And if he could get uh, Jesus to fail on this point, he would win the argument he had with God in heaven that the law isn't fair, what God requires of his creatures is not right, and that since Jesus fell and Adam fell, this world forever would have belonged to Satan. There are some key questions. Key questions for us to answer today. And if you're here and you this is the first time you're really delving into this subject or really studying who Christ is, I want you to follow along with me. If you're a Christian or even just curious about Christianity, these questions and this lesson study is important. This is more of a, a lesson study than it is a sermon. The first question we want to ask today is, did Jesus exist? We must ask that question. Number two. Was Jesus human like we are? Number three, could he have sinned? And number four, how does the biblical term antichrist relate to Christ's nature? Four questions that we're going to go through today to get a better understanding. If we are to be, as we've been studying apologetics, which is from the Greek uh, apologia, which means to be able to give a defense. Peter says we are all to be able to give a defense when we are asked. This is one of the areas you must understand who Jesus is. If you call yourself a Christian, you must understand who Jesus is. And the first question to ask, probably one of the most difficult ones, is did Jesus really exist? Not one of us has gotten a chance to see him in the flesh. Amen? In fact, when when, uh, Thomas, who we often refer to as Doubting Thomas... Questions Jesus and says, until I see the nail scars in his hands and, the, and, the, and the, piercing, uh, the spear piercing in his side, I won't believe. Jesus' response to Thomas is, you have seen and believed. Blessed is he that has not seen and yet believes. Here's what I want to offer you today, church. If you can believe in Christ wholeheartedly, completely, the way Scott's son said it in the children's story, if you can have that kind of faithfulness, there is a blessing that you can have, right? That you can have that not even the apostles had. Did Jesus really exist? Well, let's look at this. Here's what the Bible says. First John 1, one through 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. The first principle to understanding whether or not Jesus existed is to look at the most comprehensive uh, um, um, testimonials of his existence and those are found in the bible the four gospels the writings of paul and even in the book of acts the the apostles this is john he says listen we've seen him we heard him this is their testimonial now peter says it like this first second peter one verse 16 peter says for we have not followed cunningly devised fables see some people want you to think as a christian you are just believing a mythology. It's just a fable. Peter says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we but were eyewitnesses of what? Of his majesty. Peter says, I saw it myself. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter it says, listen, not only did we see him when we were on the mountain with him, we heard God speak and call him his son. Eyewitnesses. 2 Peter 1 and verse 18 says this, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mountain. Powerful. He says, listen, I witnessed it. I saw it with my own two eyes. I heard the voice. These are eyewitnesses that the scripture gives us. Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Paul says the existence of Christ is confirmed by those who heard him. Why is all of that relevant? Because these are the people who follow Jesus. History confirms this overwhelmingly as we're going to see how do we know jesus existed well one way is the four gospels and the rest of the new testament and even when we look at the prophecies of the old testament there is a consistency that would be statistically impossible to happen if they were all speaking of made-up events did you get that In other words, the consistency, the the way that the story is told, the way that the prophecies lead to the story. We talked in a a previous um, sermon about how the prophecies were so accurate and the statistical chance that one person could have fulfilled all those prophecies. It is mind-numbing. It couldn't have happened. But the way that the Bible tells the story is consistent. It gives embarrassing details. One of the reasons you can trust the New Testament story of Jesus is because it gives embarrassing details. One, a scholar gives the example that the fir- who were the first who was the first who were the first ones to find uh, the empty tomb. It was the women. Now that was in a time when no one would have written a story they wanted believed and said that the first eyewitnesses to something were women. In other words, it may it may seem silly. But the truth of the matter is, no one would have made up a story about the resurrection and the empty tomb and tried to validate it by saying the first people to see it were women. No one would have written a story about the death of Christ and told the story of Peter's denial. There are embarrassing details that uh, speak to the veracity of the scripture and of the life of Christ. They follow the man they witness. One scholar, I was reading this week, and one scholar said one of the great evidences that Jesus existed isn't simply that these men witnessed him, it's that they followed him and wrote of him. But I like the last one. One of the great evidences that Christ existed isn't just that they saw him, heard him, and followed him, it is that they died for this truth let me tell you something. If, if something was made up and you took me to take my head off or throw me into a pot of boiling oil or crucify me upside down, guess what? I'd be quick to say, no, 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 well, Barney doesn't really exist. He's just a purple dinosaur, some guy made up. Right? I'm not going to die for Barney or Superman, Batman. I'm not dying for him. Jesus was different. He convicted them such that they were willing to die. Here's what the scripture says. Acts chapter 21, verse 13. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready. Look at what Paul says. For I am ready not to be bound only, that means to be incarcerated, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When they say, listen, Paul, you can't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. Paul says, it's okay. I'm okay not only being bound, Handcuffed. I'm okay being in prison. If it means I need to die, I will go where God sends me. Would someone who didn't really believe, someone who didn't really see it, be willing to die for it? 2 Timothy 4. At the end of his life, Paul says this. 2 Timothy 6-8, one of my favorite passages of scripture. Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. This is at the time when Nero, remember Nero, the emperor of Rome, had allowed, um, some say caused, much of the city to burn to ashes. And he then incarcerated the Christians. And he wanted to kill the leaders. And Paul, he brought before the entire assembly from all over the, the mighty Roman Empire. Paul was warned that if he goes in front of this assembly and preaches Jesus, he will be put to death. The last letter, the last thing Paul writes is the book of 2 Timothy as he is about to go and steer down Nero, a depraved, a maniacal lunatic of a leader. But Paul says, "I am going to preach this gospel." And he says it like this to Timothy, "I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand." Paul says, "I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have I have kept the faith. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love his appearing. Would Paul, knowing that he could be put to death, stand by the belief in a Jesus that never existed? Well, it's not just Paul. I I, I don't have time to go through all of these, but you can look here and see that each of the apostles, when you look at um, the early Christian writers, the traditions and the legends, almost every single one of them is martyred. And this tells you how Peter was crucified upside down. Philip was flayed. I mean, some of these deaths were pretty horrible. Some of them were beheaded. The most interesting one is John, the revelator, right? They took, the legend says that he was taken and, put in a pot of boiling oil but instead of dying he was getting a he was getting a sauna treatment he was in there just muscles relaxing tendons loosening up he was just having a good time and he didn't die and so what did they how did they try and get rid of john he sent him to the isle of patmos and he's the only one that died of old age would they do this for a jesus that never existed And if Jesus never existed, how do you answer the fact that literally almost the majority of the world believes he existed? With someone who never existed, Zeus never existed. Most most people don't believe in Zeus. I could go on and on with Ra in the Egyptian uh, hierarchy of gods or Cyrus. I could go all around the world to all the gods of the great Aztecs and Incas in Central and South America. I, I could go all around the world of all the gods that existed, forgotten for the most part. How is it that a billion Muslims believe Jesus existed? Two billion Christians believe Jesus existed. Could that happen if he never actually existed? Well, let's look at some other evidence for this. Here are some non-Christian accounts of Christ, and there's a list of them there. I'm just going to highlight a few of them so we can keep moving, but there are a lot of them, and I've shown some of them to you before, but we'll go a little deeper. This is Marabar Serapian, um, who wrote between 73 um, years uh, A.D. uh, and around that time, about 70, so around the time, just after the time when uh, Jerusalem would have been destroyed by the Roman general uh, um, Titus. Um, And so he's writing here. He was a stoic philosopher. He was not a Christian. And this is what he says. He says, what advantage did the Athenians gain from putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as a judgment for their crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? In a moment, their land was covered with sand. What advantage, watch this. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their kingdom was abolished. He says, God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger. The the Samians were overwhelmed by the sea. The Jews, ruined and driven from their land, live in complete dispersion. Socrates did not die for did not die for good he lived on in the teachings of Plato. Pythagoras did not die for good he lived in the statue of Hera nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching which he had given. Jesus he says now this is not a Christian that's why he just throws Jesus in with with Socrates and Pythagoras. But do you see that this man who lived just after the time of Christ just after the fall of Jerusalem. And when he writes, he writes and it establishes that Christ existed. So some, some people say, well, we don't know who this wise king was. All right, let's keep looking in the historical record, because if you take it all together, you cannot deny the existence of Christ. Thallus, who lived 52 AD, or Thallos, he was Greek, uh, probably Samaritan. He was an early historian. He wrote in the K- Kanoi Greek. Um, he wrote a three-volume history of the Mediterranean world from the Trojan War, all the way um, to the 167th Olympiad. Um, and he says this, and he, he, his writings are not found, but um, there's um, um, a guy named Julius Africanus who quotes him. And this is how we know what he said um, at, just after the time of Christ. He says, this event followed each of his Jesus' deeds and healings of body and soul and knowledge of hidden things and his Jesus' and his, Jesus's, resurrection from the dead all sufficiently proven to the disciples before us and to his apostles after the most dreadful darkness he's speaking about the crucifixion now look at this he says after the most dreadful darkness fell over the whole world what happened when Jesus was crucified the sun went black at a time when there could not have been a solar eclipse here's what the history says um the whole uh, dreadful darkness fell over the whole world. The rocks were torn apart by an earthquake, and much of Judea and the rest of the land was torn down. Remember there was a great earthquake at the time of the crucifixion? Dallas calls this darkness an eclipse of the sun in the third book of his histories. Without reason, it seems for me. so so Julius Africano says, uh, this doesn't make sense. How could he call it an eclipse? For uh, for how are we to believe that an eclipse happened when the moon was diametrically opposite the sun? In other words, you can't explain away the darkness that happened at the crucifixion by an eclipse. It, there was no way an eclipse could have happened. And the historical evidence says that such an event happened. Pliny the Younger, he speaks of the early Christians. He was... um. Uh, from the Roman province of Bithynia um, in about the year 112 A.D. He writes, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. What day do you think the early Christians met on? They met on the Sabbath. Now, other Christians will say that this was Sunday. This was the Sabbath. He says, when they, uh, uh, like, when they sang in alternate ser- uh, verses, a hymn to Christ as to God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds but never to commit any fraud theft or adultery never to satisfy their word nor uh, to falsify their word nor deny a trust when uh, when they should be called upon to deliver it up after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food but food of an ordinary and innocent kind powerful testimony of the existence of the early church and the fact that they worshiped Christ this one, this is Phlegon of Trallis. Um Now Phlegon in the 13th or 14th book, I think of his chronicles, not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, although falling into confusion about some things which refer to Peter, but also testified that the results corresponded to his predictions. He referred to a description of Phlegon of an eclipse accompanied by earthquakes during the reign of Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar. He says that there was a uh, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day at noon. What time do we know that the darkness hit at the crucifixion? About that time. So the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Can you trust the Bible? Absolutely. Did Jesus exist? The historians say he did. This is Lucian of uh, of Samasota the Christians you know worship a man to this day the distinguished person is who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account you see this these misguided creatures start with a general conviction that they are immortal for all time which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion which are so common among them and then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are working are converted they then they deny the gods of greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws all this they take quite on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike regarding them merely as common property here this man who does not like christianity speaks up and says in fact there were christians they did worship christ and speaks to the fact that jesus was crucified it's interesting if you study the Quran. If you read the, the Quran, in the Quran it says that Jesus was born of a virgin. There's even a chapter to Mary. What they deny is the crucifixion of Christ. They say that that was a farce. He was never crucified. History says something very different, doesn't it? Of course, Josephus. I've read this to you before. He not only does Josephus um, say uh, that Jesus just existed. Look here. He says he was the Christ powerful this is a Jewish historian um you know and he says he appeared unto them spending a third day restored to life for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him I've shown you this before Tacitus the great Roman historian he also ha- hated Jesus and hated the Christians and in his annals he writes um you know he writes here he says um uh Christians by the populace Christus meaning Christ Jesus from whom the name had its origin suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators Pontius and he speaks to Pontius Pilate I could go on and on there's a lot more of that I want you to get that in fact Jesus existed and he lived as a Christian you're not following cunningly devised fables I know we're mocked for being Christians You're going to be laughed at. And let me tell you something, it's only going to get worse. But I want to establish with you today, as we look at the nature of Christ, that not only does the Bible give the record that Jesus existed, but there is enough in history and in the historical writings to show that Jesus not only existed, not only did he work miracles, but that he was crucified. And that the way the crucifixion is described in the scripture is consistent with what the historians say. Are you getting the power of this? That means that when you read your Bible, church, you're not just reading some other book. You're not just reading as if it were some spiritual legend. You are reading the word of the living God. That means the word has power. That means that when I'm going through trials at work and difficulty, and I revert to the Psalms, And I recite under my breath, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That means there's power in those words. When I had to bury my mother prematurely and was overtaken in grief, I read in the book of Psalms where it says, "Uh, precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. That's not just a word that's said, that's a word I can stand on, church. I want you to get in 2022 that you are not a part of some mysterious cult that has been led astray as the world would want you to believe that in fact you are a part of the family of the living God and he's left you enough evidence that you don't have to blindly believe you can stand on faith so what nature did Christ have This is a question a lot of people ponder. If you don't get this right, in a sense, you're in trouble. Because Jesus' purpose, as we're studying the book of Hebrews in um, Sabbath school, is to be our high priest, to go before us. He is to be our mediator between God and man. If his nature isn't right, he can't fulfill that role, and there's no hope for us anyway. So what does the Bible say? Romans 8 and verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through, through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Hmm. Jesus came in the likeness of our flesh. Well, let's read more. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of of the cross. Jesus took on the nature of man. And here's where it's interesting. He takes on the nature of man after man fell. He took on the nature of man after man fell. The scripture says he is the second Adam. Now watch this. Hebrews 2 and verse 16 and 17 says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He was made like his brethren. Jesus became like us now we talked about this when we did the one on the trinity he was fully 100% divine but he was also 100% man this is a part of the mystery of godliness but he took on our nature why because he needed to defeat satan where adam failed and that's why the first temptation brought to him was the temptation around appetite hebrews 2 and verse 18 for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. It is because he was tempted like we are that he's able to secure us for eternity. Now, why is this relevant? You see, because when we look at each other, we judge each other, don't we? We make assumptions about why people do things. But because we can't read man's heart, we really don't know why folk do what they do. But here's where it gets deep. Jesus doesn't just isn't just able to read your heart and see what you've been through the traumas the abuse the neglect Jesus came in the flesh and experienced the temptations we experience so when he stands before the father and is and is pleading on behalf of us and says his blood has covered our sins and we are now draped in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. He has the right to stand before the Father. That's why judgment is given to him. He's able to stand before the Father and to say, this one is mine. I know what they've been through. I know where they've been. I know how they were um, abused, molested, mistreated. I get it. Says my blood is sufficient to make up where they were lacking. He couldn't do that. If he didn't come in the flesh, he couldn't do it. If he didn't understand being tempted in all points like we're tempted, here's what the spirit of prophecy says: Desire of Ages, page one seventeen. Many claim that it was impossible for Christ to be overcome by temptation. Then he could not have been placed in Adam's position. He could not have gained the victory that Adam failed to gain. If we have in any sense a more trying conflict than had Christ, then he would not be able to succour us. But our Savior took humanity with all its liabilities. Did you get that? He took humanity with all its liabilities. He took the nature of man with the possibility of yielding to temptation. We have nothing to bear which he has not endured. Whatever you're going through, he has experienced. Clad in the vestments of humanity, Review and Herald, December 15, 1896, Clad in the vestments of humanity, the Son of God came down to the level of those he wished to save. In him was no guile or sinfulness. He was ever pure and undefiled, yet he took upon our sinful nature Clothing his divinity with humanity that he might associate with fallen humanity, he sought to regain from man that which by disobedience Adam had lost for himself and for the world. In his own character, he displayed to the world the character of God. Review and Herald, February 24th, 1874, he says, What love! What amazing condescension!" The king of glory proposed to humble himself to fallen humanity. He would place his feet in Adam's steps. He would take man's fallen nature and engage to cope with the strong foe who triumphed over Adam. He would overcome Satan and in thus doing, he would open the way for the redemption of those who would believe on him from the disgrace of Adam's failure and fall. He came to walk in your shoes. When I look at the life of Jesus, you know, in this um, Being Black History Month, there's a lot of talk about justice and social justice, which is, there's not many people who experienced injustice like Christ did. In fact, Jesus grew up in what we would call the hood today. When Andrew found out where Jesus lived, Andrew said, listen, can anything good come out of Nazareth? If you park your car in Nazareth, you better lock it up tight, take your valuables out. Don't leave your door unlocked if you live in, Lazarus. in Nazareth. They got, in Nazareth, they got like six locks on the door. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Deadbolts. You got to have a stack of keys by the door in case there's a fire. Nazareth was a rough place. That's where Jesus grew up. Jesus was familiar with, with tough times. Because everyone knew his that Joseph probably couldn't have Father Jesus, Jesus also had to deal with the ridicule of being a bastard child and being called names. He knew what it was like to be bullied and teased as a child. And yet even as a child, Jesus never sinned. In fact, uh, uh, the spirit of prophecy says that when uh, temptation would come to Jesus as a child, he would begin to him uh, to hum a song and the other children who were trying to get him to do wrong. He would begin to hit to to sing a song or hum a song and they would begin to hum along with him. What love church. I want you to understand. You see, let me tell you something. This world will leave you thinking nobody loves you. Jesus suffered. Like I say, he suffered in ways no one can understand. All right, I didn't even get to the cross and what happened to him there. But what this world, what a lot of people miss in this world is love. I was, I was on a men's ministry call this morning um, for one, a church out of state and um, one of the men asked, why is it that we as men fall into sexual sin so easily? Powerful statement. He said, well, why is this, why does that happen? I said, for a lot of us, I've said it here before, God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it, right? Once you understand where Christ came from to save you, you understand that there is no person on earth, no act you can perform on earth, no video you can watch, no song you can listen to, no person you can date who could ever love you more than God does. But God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. That's why that one historian said these people thought themselves immortal. That's why they they don't mind being put to death. But he didn't understand if Christ is in you, you can't die the second death. Was Christ born with sin? This is where it gets difficult. A lot of Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of Christians struggle here. Was Christ born with sin? Let Let me read the spirit of prophecy first, then we'll talk about it. He, Christ, was to take his position at the head of humanity uh, by taking the nature, but not the sinfulness of man. In heaven was heard the voice, the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Christ made a full atonement, letter 97, 1898. Christ made a full atonement, giving his life as a ransom for us. He was born without a taint of sin, but came into the world in like manner as the human family. He did not have a mere semblance of a body, but he took human nature participating in the life of humanity. He, Testimonies to the Church, Volume 2, page 508, he prayed for his disciples and found, he prayed for his disciples and for himself, thus identifying himself with our needs, our weaknesses, and our failings, which are so common with humanity. He was a mighty petitioner not possessing the passions of our human fallen natures, but compassed with like infirmities, tempted in all points even as our as we are. Jesus endured agony which required help and support from his father. What does this mean? When the Holy Spirit came over Mary, what Jesus didn't get that we all got was the actual burden of sin. David says, I was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Jesus came with our nature, so he can fall. He could have fallen and sinned, but he didn't come as someone who had sin on him, as we do. Why is that relevant? Because if Jesus had sin on him, he could not be the spotless lamb to go to the cross. So here, Christ transgressed not the law of God in any particular. More than this, he removed every excuse from fallen man that he could urge for a reason for not keeping the law of God. Christ was compassed with the infirmity of humanity. He was beset with the fiercest temptations, tempted on all points like as men, yet developed a perfectly upright character. And let me tell you something. If you think you've been tempted, you think Satan didn't tempt Jesus 10 times worse? 100 times worse? No taint of sin was found upon him. The humanity of Christ is called that holy thing. The inspired record says of Christ, he did no sin. He knew no sin, and in him was no sin. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. So he had our nature, but he never had the stain of sin. So the last question is on the spirit of the Antichrist. This is something that's very popular. 1 John 4, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this church, he says here, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. It is the denying of Christ's coming in the flesh that is the spirit of Antichrist. And here's what I've, as I was studying this, what I realized. That means even if you say Christ coming in the flesh wasn't enough, so I've got to go confess in a confessional to a priest. What you're saying is what Christ did wasn't enough. That's the spirit of Antichrist. If you're saying that I need superstition and I've got to follow my astro- astrological signs and I got to know where Capricorn is compared to, 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 to Libra or whatever they do, You're saying that what Jesus did isn't enough. You deny his coming in the flesh. That's the spirit of Antichrist. 2 John 1, verse 6, And and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and a what? Antichrist. Now here's where it gets deep. The spirit of Antichrist has been unleashed. I'm going to give you a couple examples. And I'm not, I won't even say who this is. I just showed a picture. His name is written there. But I'm going to quote some of these quotes from very, and I, I had a whole bunch of them. I cut most of them out except for these two. From very popular televangelists. Look at what they say. Well, um, this televangelist says, when you say I am a Christian, you are saying I am Mashiach in the Hebrew. I am a little Messiah walking on earth. In other words, that is a shocking Revelation. May I say it like this? You are a little God on earth running around. That is the spirit of Antichrist. When you start saying, everybody and their and, and mother basically did what Jesus did. You're a little God running around. Now, this is, this, is, this is separate from like the 5% nation of Islam. Some of y'all grew up in New York might know about the 5%ers. This is what the, the, the religion on which hip-hop music was formed. It teaches that the black man is God. So when you listen to Jay-Z and you listen to Wu-Tang Clan and all of these groups, listen carefully. They're telling you that they're God. That's why Jay-Z sings in his song, I am Jehovah, God MC. It's the same spirit of what? Antichrist. The mayor of New York, Eric Adams, who we had on one of our our shows one night because he he, he promotes a plant-based lifestyle. This week he was, he's being criticized because he went and he said the violent crime in New York is so high and he stood before the people of New York and said, listen, he started to say, listen, even the hip hop music and this new form of music, drill music, is, uh, is uh, encouraging our young people to commit these heinous crimes. But this is not a, he's not, you know, I don't know that Eric Adams is a professed Christian. Maybe he is, I don't know. But I'm telling you that the spirit of Antichrist is powerful. And once it seeps in, it seeks to cause destruction. And remember, we've talked about this here before. Satan uses music. Here he says, "Um, Jesus Christ knew the only way he would stop Satan is by becoming one in nature with him. He became one with the nature of Satan. So all those who had the nature of Satan can partake of the nature of God. Now, how do you even reconcile such an insane statement? But this is the spirit of Antichrist, because Satan wanted to have Christ. He was the one who wanted to be on top. For, for you to say that Christ had to take had to come and take on Satan's nature is blasphemous. If you don't know what you believe, you'll be sitting in the auditorium of ninety thousand people while these people are preaching. And they start raising their hands, Shama shamalama, Shama Lama, shu. and the whole first five rows fall out. And that's what they do. <laughs> I, I, I digress. But I remember we were we 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 done Bible studies with this family, and they'd become um, they become believers. They believed that they became Seventh Day Adventists, and they started to tell us that they used to go to this same preacher's uh, meetings. And the daughter and the mother were with us. And the daughter said, Mom, this is so much better than when we were following this other person. And they started to tell the story. They went and they got up into the front so that they could get healing. And when the person went like this, whoosh, the whole first five, everybody went flying back. And the mother and the daughter landed on top of each other. Chairs were on top of them. They're laying there in agony and pain. And the daughter turned to her mother. She said, she said I turned to my mother and I said, mom this can't be of God and the mother said why the daughter said mom this hurts too much if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it they will shama lama shoo you have you running around in circles talking gibberish thinking that somehow you've, you, are, you are working with the spirit of the living God when in fact you are working with the spirit of demons this Bible commentary says it like this Christ was not made a sinner, nor was he punished for any sin of his own. Instead, the Father treated him as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sins of everyone who would ever believe. All those sins were charged against him as if he had personally committed them, and he was punished with the penalty for them on the cross. Experiencing the full fury of God's wrath unleashed against them all, it was at that moment that Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember we said this is when there was a rip in the Trinity. It is crucial, therefore, to understand that the only sense in which Jesus was made sin was by imputation. He was personally pure, yet officially culpable. In other words, he was responsible. Personally holy, yet forensically guilty. But in dying on the Christ cross, Christ did not become evil like we are, nor do redeemed sinners become inherently as holy as he is. God credits believers' sin to Christ's account, watch this, and his righteousness to theirs. This is the plan of salvation, that a perfect sinless Christ came in our nature, did not fall to the wiles of the enemy. He did not sin. And when it comes time on judgment day for Eric Walsh to stand before the judgment seat of the living God, instead of my sin, my failure coming up on the great screen of the universe, Christ will say he is mine and the screen will go blood red. The blood of Christ will cover all that I've ever done wrong and I will be able to wear the robe of his righteousness. That's why we're Christians, church. We're a unique belief system. Everybody else believes you've got to figure out a way to work your way into paradise or nirvana. In some religions, if you don't get it right in this life, you've got to come back as a slug or a ladybug or something. I don't want to be a ladybug. I want to walk the streets of gold. I want a crown of righteousness. I want to sit at the welcome table and stand on the sea of glass. I want to keep coming back over and over and over again so I maybe get to be a bird. I want to be like Jesus. Finish with these two verses, with these few verses. Hebrews chapter four. Verse 12, for the word of God is quick. And it's powerful, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Guess what, church? There is no hiding from God. Christ sees it all. You can try and see if you can check into the no-tell motel, but he can see through the walls of the motel as well. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as, like, as we are. Yet, church, No sin. Here's why this is so powerful. Because it allows verse 16 to echo through your heart and mind. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of the sacrifice Christ made, I can go boldly to the throne. It means you don't have to do this life alone, church. I'll finish. I want to put in a plug for um, the the ministry at the nursing home. I have to say, I've I've really been enamored. I don't know where Eva is going, and I've actually gotten to become very good friends with some of them, and um, really enjoy my time. I'll be there tomorrow again, Um, and I invite, I tell you, you know, I, I love to do mission trips and stuff, but I tell you what, there are mission fields all around us that don't cost much for us to go to, and that's one of them, and last week, Um, It was only about five or six people there and one of the workers, and we got into a very deep Bible study. In fact, there was a man from Italy who was raised Catholic who was um, uh, talking about the merits of the statue of, of the Madonna and how the statue wept and how a ghost visited his house in Italy. And so we veered off the topic and we started having serious Bible study on some of these issues. And we got to this point where I finally I showed him the scriptures that basically say, All you need is Jesus. You don't need a weeping statue. You don't need any ghosts. As we say in Jamaica, no duppy needs to come find you. You don't need any of that stuff. All you need is Christ because he paid the price. He came in the flesh. And because of his sacrifice, you have access to eternal life. I said, I don't care how bad you've sinned. His blood still cleanses. We stopped and we prayed. And there was only five of us, so I sat at the table with them. And afterwards, one of the gentlemen stood up. He had visible markings on his face of injury and disease, and, and he was weak. And one of the gentlemen, that I, for all, as long as I've been going there, has been coming in a wheelchair. This was the first time he walked, he used his walk, and he walked in. He came in. He's studying to be a pastor, and so he always helps with the, with the Bible studies in a sense. And when this gentleman heard what I said, the one that was scarred and marred, he began to weep. He got out of his chair and went and stood up against the wall and the man began to weep and cry and say, Jesus could never forgive me. He began to weep and cry that his sins were so great that the blood of Jesus couldn't wash him away. Before I could jump in, the other gentleman who studied to be a pastor went over, threw his arms around him. And hugged him. And he said, what Jesus did is enough. And the two men embracing, bound by the love of Christ, touched me, church. It moved me. Only five people. I wasn't standing in front of, I was preaching auditoriums of eight and 10,000 people. But I have to say the spirit of God moved on that nursing home that day. The, the woman there that worked there was in tears. Everyone in the room was moved because the spirit of God showed up and the validity and power of Christ in the flesh. What he did for us on the cross showed up in that room. Let me tell you something, church. If you're a Christian, do not allow yourself to live this life and not have the experience of knowing and enjoying what Christ did for you every night in your living room. Study this thing with your family. Go over the sacrifice of Christ. This world will not last forever. Ah, but church, Christ's love for you will last forever. When we get to glory, when we get to glory, we will literally be able to still put our fingers in the nail prints. He will be eternally in that human form. And he will stay that way because his coming to earth as a human and dying on the cross has made it so that for eternity he will be closer to us than if sin had never entered the universe. That is the power of the plan of salvation. So I want to encourage you, whatever you're going through today, church, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim the light of his glory and grace father god we thank you for this word today we thank you for the gift of jesus christ we thank you for what he did for us on the cross we thank you lord that he is not some legendary mythological figure but that history and the scriptures both confirm we serve a risen savior